0: Thus far, we have used what we have learned in the first part of the course to apply to how actors' actions and tradecraft work, how subversive warfare works in the world. And we're gonna continue on this march through lesson 11 on Thursday and Friday. If you recall back to the beginning of the semester, we talked about unrestricted political warfare. We learned about the importance of creative ways and means that it takes to recognize, to analyze, counter, collapse, and execute subversive warfare. We discussed active measure subversion. We learned about offensive measures, and specifically, we took a very deep look at exacerbating schisms, a type of active measure subversion, exacerbating schisms that already exist through intermediaries and done subtly. These lessons were to help us with a mindset, a framework through which to better understand and conduct subversive warfare. Then we discussed ways and means, not in theory, but through meta case studies. Subterfuge as a continuing action of subversive warfare. It is the other side of the subversion coin. The assumption is that subtlety and secrecy are never enough. We need layered deception plans, especially those that allow an adversary to conduct self-deception by playing into their biases and worldviews and wishes. We then discussed conspiracy theories as a way to look at ways and means. We broke down societal schisms at the extreme and how subversion can be conducted to deceive, divert, or distract societies, and furthermore, a more specific way on how to divide and sometimes even create ideological and political divisions. In film, we discussed the ways and means to attempt to subvert audiences with some subtlety given enough time and exposure. An idea, certainly, that is debatable. Then we applied what we learned about ideological and political subversion, influencing people through film, exacerbating divides using conspiracy theories, an extreme example, and the necessity, often, of subterfuge, if not outright deception, then at least diversion and distraction. We applied these through specific case studies, looking at specific case studies, so we could see these means, most often people, such as third options, fifth columns, fellow travelers, and more, and ways focused around intermediaries, secrecy, deception, and go-betweens, and sometimes a thousand subtle pricks below the radar, in particular case studies. In Partisans and Saboteurs, we look to several levels and layers of subversive warfare in action, from mild resistance to outright guerrilla warfare, how we can see subversion in all the shades of gray between our theoretical peace in a theoretical total war. But even in total war, subversion is occurring concurrently. We look specifically to an example of global and strategic subversion with many lines of effort and many layers of deception and stovepiping between labor unions, the White House, the Hill, the Vatican, groups of priests, and many others in order to subvert Soviet political and ideological influence and attempted control in Poland for the better part of a decade. We then turned our attention to strategic sabotage. We discussed not outright subversion or a collapse from within another entity, but instead methods and ways and tools to slow, lower morale, make a particular organization or office or branch become less effective, less efficient, through simple means over enough time, below the level of outright treason, perhaps. Then, most recently yesterday and today, we talked about hacking the subconscious. We looked at big oil, social media, and political campaigns, attempts to affect the subconscious, playing to biases and foundational narratives, and the limbic system, especially on the phenomena of biological terror, disgust, and shame. We debated how jarring certain campaigns can be on our psyche, and looked at the final objective, which is typically behavior changed or behavior unchanged our target target often being the subconscious or limbic system. That is to say, our myths and ideologies or our primordial and emotional instincts. And now we come to the oppressed, fifth columns. What is a fifth column? According to Oxford Languages Dictionary, a fifth column is a group within a country at war who is sympathetic to or working for its enemies. According to Merriam-Webster, A fifth column specifically is a group of secret sympathizers or supporters of an enemy that engage in espionage or sabotage within defense lines or national borders. And then if you look to an Oxford Reference Dictionary, we see that it's a group within a country at war who are sympathetic to or working for its enemies. And if we look to more of a popular definition of a fifth column, from the encyclopedia britannica we see that it is a clandestine group or faction of subversive agents who attempt to undermine a nation's solidarity by any means at their disposal according to this encyclopedia the term is conventionally credited to Emilio Mola Vidal a nationalist general during the Spanish civil war that's between 36 and 39 1936 and 1939 As four of his army columns moved on Madrid, the general referred to his militant supporters within the capital as his fifth column, intent on undermining the loyalist government from within. Now I wanna move to the readings. We have The Economist article. This is to reintroduce us to the idea of authentic natural born revolts against the powerful. In this case, villages against Taliban rule. For this article, I want to challenge the notion of looking to tribes and natural-born tribal militias as force multipliers. That perhaps these real grassroots movements may instead be main efforts, an idea that Dr. Arturo Munoz insinuates in our talk. Liberation of the oppressed may not be a sideshow, but instead the main events. Oftentimes, this is not realized until too late in a conflict. For example, until the end of World War I against the Ottomans or until late into the U.S. Civil War against the Confederacy, when finally emancipation became not just the underlying driver for the Confederacy to leave, but became formally an ideological center of the fight. A debatable point for sure. Now, for the Ideology as a Means of Social Control article, I thought this was a wonderful reading to end the semester. The author speaks to the human need for explanation and simplification, And the driving force of the unconscious mind to create our realities. How these can be subverted, or at least questioned in extreme cases, how ideology, what I call foundational narrative, affects how we see and behave in the world without necessarily being able to describe said foundational narratives ourselves very well. The intersection between ideology, myth, and doctrine In this way, it helps us understand subversive warfare at its most extreme, which is powers attempting to subvert the civilizations and ideologies of competitors and adversaries. And the relevance of this article to our final taught learned lesson on fifth columns, the oppressed is, and I quote from that article, the most decisive changes in history are changes in ideologies, the intensifying or weakening the eternal struggle of ideas. Not just to describe the liberation of the oppressed, not to just describe revolutions, no matter how subtle, how long-term, how non-kinetic, but to challenge us to look to warfare and strategy differently. And that is not just through frontal approaches, but through indirect subversive strategies that ultimately enable an adversary to subvert themselves, To fall under their own weight, or to be consumed by their own divisions, or to be slowed to a halt through their own fence-sitters and quiet detractors, so that wars, when appropriate, can be won without a shot fired, without a fight, so we can kill silently, invisibly, from a distance, an idea, especially to kill the idea of a war before the inception of a notion to even think about going to war in the first place. Thank you.